Well, I grew up um, on the Texas Gulf Coast. And I know you're surprised to hear that I'm from Texas because I don't mention that very often. <laughs> Texans seem to be a little guarded about our heritage. We don't just go around talking about it all the time. So in case you were wondering, Texas. Um, I grew up outside the Houston area, but close enough to the coast to just drive down to the beach for a weekend. And when we would tell people that we were headed to the beach for a weekend and they asked where we were staying, I would reluctantly have to say these words. My grandparents have a beach house. And I say reluctantly because I knew the picture that people would get in their minds when I said beach house. A picture not about the house, but about my family as well. When I would say my grandparents have a beach house, I knew it would invoke images of some huge stylish structure near the water where people would sit on a veranda and sip drinks before retiring to some plush interior for the evening, something that would be in the pages of a magazine or maybe the set for a beachside movie. But none of these pictures were accurate. Beach House does not quite describe what we had. In reality, what I should have said was, my grandfather has a fishing shack. <laughs> Our beach house was unlike the picture of any beach house that most people would imagine. It was pretty small. It was one floor of living space, but um, it was two stories because the living space of the house was up on stilts off the ground. If you know coastal areas, you know that most houses are on stilts because it's not a matter of if the hurricane is coming, it's when. It was not even on the beach. I mean, it was in a beach town, but the location of the house was maybe 15, 20 minutes from the water. And the house itself was old and rickety with peeling floorboards and fluorescent lights and stacks of old life magazines that were dusty all the way back to the 1960s. And the actual living space was up on the second floor. So what was underneath? Well, underneath was an unfinished space. It was really more like a an unfinished garage or a dark shed. There was a, not just a dirt floor, but old seashells covering the floor. You didn't walk on those without your shoes on. It was a damp and dirty place where the boat was kept. And so you, you did it again. When I said we had a boat, you got a picture in your head that is not accurate to the picture. You imagine something about a family that would own a boat. Um, but this boat uh, was ancient and it was no longer seaworthy. It had spent years rotting under the house. And, and way back behind it in the dark was all this old rusty fishing equipment and there were no lights under the house, no electricity. And, and way back in the corner was this old gas hot water heater. And that hot water heater was the only reason you ever wanted to go under the house because under the house was a scary place. Um, I didn't mention this, but we once found a rattlesnake nest under the house and hopefully caught it before they grew up and created their own nests. But as you tiptoed across that shell dirt floor toward that old hot water heater, you would often hear the rustling of something, maybe, maybe a family of raccoons, you would hope, uh, living in the boat. And you would think, well, at least someone's getting some use out of it. But navigating past that boat in the dark, past the rusty fishing equipment, um, as things brushed against your legs, you would make your way to that old hot water heater, which was necessary 
because you needed to go to that hot water heater once when you arrived at the house and once when you left. Uh, you needed to switch it on because what was scarier than going under the house was the idea of taking cold showers after a day at the beach the whole time that you were there. And so you'd tiptoe back, hoping not to touch anything living, back into that dark, far corner next to the gas hot water heater. You'd take your flashlight, but it didn't do a lot to help, and you, you would get at eye level with the controls of this hot water heater until you could look back in it and you could see this tiny blue flame back inside. It was a pilot light. Um, that light, as far as I experienced it, never went out, but it was so little. It was so silent that you didn't know it was there. It didn't do anybody any good. And, and when you got your face right up to it, you would feel along the side of the hot water heater for the, the switch, and you would flip it on. And somewhere, somewhere deep inside, a deep blue flame would rise up touching that pilot light, and you would hear it, the sound that let you know that it was working. You would hear this whoosh of ignition. And then you would hear something else. You would hear the, the creaking of the hot water heater as it slowly began to warm up and be ready for service. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, he writes to his young protege, the one he knows and loves so well that he calls him his dear son. And he sends him these words of encouragement. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And when I hear that, when I hear fan into flame the gift that is in you, my, my mind goes under the house. It goes back deep in the dark to that tiny pilot light in the dark corner underneath my grandfather's fishing shack. That little light that was so present down there in the dark, but it didn't do anybody any good until it ignited something greater than itself. Something that had been fanned into flame, the whoosh that let you know that it was ready to serve. And in the years since I've been following Jesus, um, I know he has never let go of me, but I've, I've let go of him a few times. I, I've walked away. I have run the other direction at certain times. But some of the lowest times in my faith have not been moments of uh, direct rebellion. You know, not moments where I was intentionally just running from God. Some of the, the lowest moments of faith for me have just been stagnant. Some of those dark nights of the soul where I knew I still believed, but wasn't really acting on my faith. It wasn't fanned up to being fully alive in me. That, that pilot light was there. I knew it. I knew it was lit. But there was no whoosh. Nothing in me that would overflow to serve others. And I bet if we had conversations with those next to us, we would find that everybody has seasons like this. We all have dry seasons, damp seasons. Um, and when we do, we need the encouragement of others. Um, encouragement like Timothy received from Paul. This section of the letter where this fanning into flame takes place that Tammy read for us, it is full of references to where Timothy's faith started out, where it comes from in the first place. The opening verses of this letter read like a rehearsal of Timothy's faith heritage. 
Paul is telling Timothy that in order to have a fiery faith, he's going to need to learn to look back. He has to claim his heritage. It's back to his starting places where he has to go. And, and Paul has known Timothy and his family for so long that he doesn't just call Timothy by name. He calls his family members by name as well. He says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. Here, Paul is giving Timothy this first clue in how to keep a faith that burns brightly, and it has a lot to do with looking back. Paul knows that in order for Timothy's faith to survive in a challenging world, he has to trace that faith back to where it came from and remember that constantly. In this letter, he calls out the names of those whose faith burned brightly enough to help start that initial spark in Timothy's life and faith. And we know that Timothy's own mother, Eunice, his grandmother, Lois, that they were Jewish believers who were some of the first generations who believed in Jesus after the resurrection. It was through their faith, their encouragement, that they nurtured Timothy until he grew to become a believer himself. And seeing the faith of his mother and grandmother, Timothy must have grown up in a place where he himself learned how powerful it could be to be a follower of Jesus. And to look back means to grab hold of that thread that started before us and the faith that goes back always to other people. Nobody starts this life with Jesus on their own. You, you might have a story like Timothy's. Maybe you have a Lois. Maybe there's a Eunice in your family that modeled a deep faith for you. But if you don't, it doesn't mean you don't have a heritage. It doesn't mean you don't have ancestors. We don't hear anything here about Timothy's father. We don't know much about him in other parts of scripture. But what we do know is that God brought Paul into Timothy's life. That Paul saw Timothy as a son in the faith, a dear son in the faith. That he became like a father to Timothy. And he writes with such intimacy here. With such familiarity and really a kind of parental authority, he says things that a parent would say. Um, when Paul addresses Timothy, wanting him to look back, he tells him to look back to him. He says, look at me. This faith didn't just come to you through your family. It, God brought you me. What a gift that is. But he doesn't even stop there. Paul begins to talk about his own ancestors in the faith, and he connects Timothy to those ancestors. He says this in, in chapter 1, verse 3, the God I serve with a clear conscience just as my ancestors did. Now that thread goes way back, doesn't it? I mean, you know a little bit about Paul's history, right? Paul is connecting Timothy now to a heritage of people who were saved through the blood of the Passover lamb, who were led out of slavery in Egypt, who crossed through the Red Sea, who worked their way to the promised land on a long and arduous journey. These are Paul's people. He belongs to them. And what he's saying is, Timothy, because you're connected to me, they're your people too. This is your history. This is your heritage. Claim it. Own it. Know your story. Make sure you stand with those folks at the Red Sea. Make sure that your history is one of walking with them to the promised land. Timothy, these are your people too. It's almost like Timothy was taking some kind of spiritual DNA test. Those are everywhere right now, right? I mean, you spit in a tube. 
not me, I don't spit in a tube, but some of you might have, and you send it off to some lab somewhere, and you find out who your ancestors were. And when Timothy's spiritual DNA comes back, it turns out that it contains all the bloodlines of all the believers in Jesus, then all the way back through Paul's ancestors, through the Old Testament, all the way back to the God of creation connecting with the very first human being. I mean, that's a DNA report right there. What that means for us as we step into Timothy's place and think about catching that thread of faith that goes so far back, what it means for us is that none of us is an independent contractor in the faith. No one is a free agent when they follow Jesus. If you get Jesus, you get all his people for better and for worse. And since these pastoral letters are written so often to combat false teaching that was going on at the time, we can't help but notice that a big part of standing firm in a culture where teaching about faith has been hijacked means to stay connected to the faithfulness of the past. It means to ground yourself in deep tradition and spiritual ancestry of those who lit the pilot light for us in the first place. As we think about looking back, we have to just say this, that faith, it can be passed down, but it is never secondhand. There's no such thing as a secondhand faith. None of us can rely on the witness of other people's experience with Jesus. It just doesn't transfer somehow. We need a firsthand faith. None of us gets grandfathered in because our family member or our mentor or our pastor or our professor has this really great connection to God that we just observe from the outside. We have to learn that with this very personal God, we need to lean in for a very personal connection. I think that's what Paul is saying when he tells Timothy, for this reason, I remind you, you fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands, fan into flame. That's a very personal action that he's asking him to take. I mean, clearly Paul has had his hands on him. His fingerprints are all over Timothy's life. They're all over his ministry. And the gift of the Spirit is in Timothy, but the Spirit is a living one. And so it needs to be fed, interacted with, listened to, and responded to this gift, this living interaction with a spirit that lives in us, according to 1 Thessalonians, it can be quenched. You can pour fire on, you can pour water on fire. But now according to this letter, it can be fanned into flame. It can be tended like any good fire should be, not neglected, not ignored. Paul is saying if you wanna have that kind of fiery faith, You don't just look back, you need to look up. You have to go directly to the God of all these ancestors and make sure he is your God. And you've got to tend your faith. We have to look directly to God as our help and hope, not trying to go through other stories. And not only can you not just rely on the faith of your fathers or your mothers, as Timothy's case is, you can't even live on your own faith of five years ago. You can't just say, God and I had a story way back when, 
and I'm still going off at that fuel, that's not enough. What are you and God up to this year, this semester, this week? It is a beautiful thing to have a testimony, but knowing that you are a building a testimony with God, that's the flame. That's the reason to look for the fuel that will keep the flame alive. That's the reason that we have all of these great commissioning moments in scripture. All these moments like this one between Paul and Timothy, between mentors and mentees, between disciplers and disciples. These moments where someone like Paul looks at someone like Timothy and says, I have done what I can for you. But there are certain things that only you can do for your faith. You see it over and over again in scripture, this passing of the mantle. I mean, we see it clearly in stories like Paul and Timothy's fan into flame, the gift of God in you through the laying on of my hands, both the, both the giving of the faith and the encouragement now to take it yourself and run with it. We see it in stories like Moses to Joshua, be strong and courageous is what he says to him. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. We see it in stories like Mordecai and Esther. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. We see it in stories like Elijah and Elisha. And there's no quote there on purpose. Elijah doesn't even use words to transfer his faith to his disciple. Elijah never does anything normally. He's just odd. That's what prophets are, they're odd. So there's no quote here. You may recall that famous passage from 1 Kings. It's where we actually get the phrase, the passing of the mantle, right? Where Elijah simply walks up to Elisha out in the fields, plowing the field behind some oxen, and throws the mantle over his shoulders, takes the symbol of the prophet's authority and leadership, and just places it on him, and then walks his way. I guess that's all he needed to say. He said it without a word. Tag, you're it. <laughs> New prophet in town. I'm going on vacation now. If there was a cruise, Elijah might have gone on a cruise at that point. But what I notice is that while Elijah didn't need any more than that, Elisha did. He didn't stay on the plow. He ran after that man. <laughs> he said, I need to follow you. I need to learn from you. It, he knew that if he wanted to be a great prophet, he needed to follow a great prophet. How many of you are following somebody right now because you know you want a little bit of what they've had in their ministry? He needed to go and pick up the clues that would help him grow in his own life and ministry. And, and Elisha started out calling Elijah master. He was called sometimes the one who poured water on the great Elijah's hands. What a beautiful role, just, just to be there to wash the hands of the great prophet. He called him master in the beginning, but by the time we get to the end of their story together, he's calling him father. Isn't that beautiful? That their time together, their life together in ministry, that, that's what happens to us. And that means that the, you haven't had a Eunice, and if you haven't had a Lois, that's okay. God has one for you. Hopefully a lot more than one. God has fathers and mothers in the faith waiting for you. 
waiting to pour into you, even if some of them might be a little odd, like Elijah. I mean, quirky and awkward and eccentric teachers seem to be the mold in the Bible, especially the Old Testament. And so you can't fault those of us trying to teach you here at Asbury for just fitting the mold sometimes. (laughs) And before I get stared off the platform by some of your professors, I'll make my point about that, that at the end of Elijah's odd life, he met an odd end. And he left this earth unlike anyone else who had left before him. He was taken up to heaven by a chariot of fire and a whirlwind. And we're told that when he did, part of him stayed behind. That as he went up to meet his Lord, his mantle fell and hit the ground underneath him. And here's what we're told that Elisha did. These are words from 2 Kings chapter 2. Elisha picked up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water parted, one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Now, the first time Elisha received that mantle, he didn't ask for it. He was minding his own business. It was simply cast on him, the symbol of his calling, of his walk that he would have in his lifetime with God. The first time, he he didn't do anything to receive it, but this, this last story, he has to pick it up himself. It is not enough for anyone else to recognize that he is called. It is not enough for anyone to look at his life and work and say, you should think about going to seminary someday. You have some gifts for ministry. It is not enough for any other leader to speak words of calling and encouragement over him. They certainly help. But in the end, he has to pick it up. He has to say to God, yes, here I am. It is me and I will go with you. Elisha has to recognize it himself. No matter how many times his mentor lays his hands on him in prayer, it is up to him to fan into flame the gift that is in him. It's up to him to take up the mantle, even after someone else has thrown it to him. Do you get this? I mean, looking back, it is necessary. Catching hold of the thread that connects us to all of the great traditions, even those that are living traditions with us today, they're so important. It's just not enough. We can't only look back. We have to look to God personally. We have to ask, what is it that you want from me here and now? I may never feel ready, but I'm yours. And I will do whatever you ask. I will look up to you for the help that I need, for the power and the love and the self-control that comes only through the spirit that is within us. Paul knows that. He wants Timothy to know it too. And then Paul also declares in this letter that this firsthand faith is going to end up being something too good to keep to ourselves. That part of fanning into flame what is in us is to hand it off to others. He says, so never be ashamed to tell others about our Lord. Fiery faith always compels us to share it with others. To not keep it a secret. There is no secret discipleship. 
The secret either destroys the discipleship or the discipleship destroys the secret. Fiery faith will compel us into action to share what we have found in others. So if you want this kind of fully alive flame of faith, you've got to look around too. You've got to look for places to give away your faith, to step into action. My college roommate, uh, who's a dear friend to this day, lives um, in the Rocky Mountains in Denver, Colorado. And she and her husband went on a road trip a few years ago to visit some family, and they found themselves caught in a snowstorm, snow and ice, something that hopefully we've done with in 2018 here in Wilmore. The snow was coming down hard, and the ice was accumulating, and even for experienced drivers, it was hard going. Cars in front of them began sliding off the road to the right and to the left, and soon they finally found themselves victims of the storm, too. The car uh, slid into an embankment of snow, firmly stuck in it, and would not budge. And so they got a lift to a nearby town where the only open establishment was a Denny's. Praise the Lord for Denny's sometimes. This was your typical roadside diner where all of the people that had been rescued from the road had now gathered. People from all over. This town didn't have that many people in it, but now it did. They were all in Denny's. And what they observed as they sat and waited to be waited on was that they waited and waited, that there, there was only a skeleton crew of people who worked there who had been able to make it in that day, and there were far more patrons than there ever had been before, and there was no one else coming, that serving all these people was a real struggle. And my friend and her husband looked at each other and they realized something, well, they realized they were hungry, and they realized they were thinking the same thing, and so they, they got up from the table and they went to the back and they asked if they could serve. After that surprise staff realized they were serious, they began to bust tables, to hand out menus, to seat guests, even to serve food. And what they realized is there was joy in people's faces when they realized the, these were people who were patrons of the restaurant just like them. These weren't professionals. Some of those who wanted to eat also wanted to serve. And that moment comes for each of us in our faith too when it's time to stop sitting and to take up the apron and serve. There comes a moment when you will no longer be content to sit at the table and make sure that you are fed, but you want to see that everyone is fed, that what you have tasted, you will want to make sure others can taste and see that the Lord is good. Never be ashamed to tell others about your faith, Paul says. You've been served, now it's time. It's time to serve. Serve up the same gospel, the same teaching. Guard it and serve it. The same that was offered to you. And this year, uh, the Christian faith lost a great leader. The legendary preacher, Billy Graham. And he shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with more people than anyone in history. And even before his death, Commentators began speculating about who would be the next Billy Graham. Did you see any of these articles? It was a hashtag. Look for it. The next Billy Graham. Who would be his successor? Who would be the next great evangelist, the next great teacher who would reach the multitudes for Jesus? 
And, and the articles that I read had names of great preachers and teachers. Maybe, maybe it's him. Someone who might be his, his successor. They came up with the names often of sometimes his children, his colleagues, names of people who were gifted and dynamic personalities, people who were shining examples of the possibilities for the next great leader who would impact the world for Christ. Who would it be? And I think I detected in some of their writing a little sort of self-congratulatory wishful thinking. Maybe it's me. If I ask this question long enough, maybe somebody will say, well, clearly it's you, right? <laughs> maybe if I ask who will stand on the empty platform, someone will invite me there. Because, boy, I could really shine on that platform. But Russell Moore, one of the leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention, had a different take on who would be the next Billy Graham. Instead of looking into the hallowed halls of the already saved and the supremely gifted and the Christian famous, Dr. Moore said with a candor that shocked a lot of people, the next Billy Graham might be drunk right now. How dare he? I'm sure a lot of people wondered, how dare he? This is Billy Graham's legacy we are talking about. But he wanted people to know that the next great generation of leaders of our faith is not even in the seats of the church yet. They are out there hurting and messed up and waiting for God's love to be poured out on them, waiting to be reached with kindness, waiting to be touched with the love of God that comes through God's people. Russell Moore didn't even stop at the holy and admired Billy Graham. He began to mess with some other leaders throughout history he persisted in his point by naming Christians whose names we lift up pretty high, even in a seminary setting. He said this, the next Billy Graham might be drunk by right now. The next Jonathan Edwards might be the man driving in front of you with the Darwin fish bumper decal. The next Charles Wesley might currently be a misogynistic profanity spewing hip hop artist. The next Charles Spurgeon might be managing an abortion clinic today. The next Mother Teresa might be a heroin-addicted porn star this week. And the next Augustine of Hippo might be a sexually promiscuous cult member right now, just like, come to think of it, the first Augustine <laughs> of Hippo was. Boy, you people have had a lot of church history, I can tell. Russell Moore was making a point that the Christian faith is not an exclusive club that is more valuable because we keep the riffraff out and the cleaned up, spiffed up know-it-alls in. The church is only the church at her best when we are fired up for the least and the last and the lost. And when we are looking at them with eyes that see the image of God so clearly through all the rest of it that we fully expect transformation that will mean that they will be the ones standing on the platform. And not just any platform, this chapel, this campus, and the world will be their parish. Having fully combusted the faith that ignites our lives means that we will never ask, when is it my turn to shine? 
There will not be in us this desire for some kind of warped Christian celebrity, but that we will always be looking in the dark places, into the shadiest lives that we could bring the light to, that we will have the courage that Paul encouraged Timothy to have to walk to the darkest corners under the house where our feet would never dare to walk if it weren't for our deep desire to see that light ignite other lives for faith. It's the dream of the transformation of others, my dear Timothys, that make what you are doing with your lives right now worth it. It's not the platform, it's the people. So fan into flame the gift that is in you through the laying on of my hands, the hands of your professors, your parents, your mentors, your pastors, it's yours now. And the mantle is before you, and only you can pick it up. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.